about a week ago, Rick Clark called me wondering uh, if there was a, a possibility that I would be able to uh, host this session for him tonight, just in case he couldn't make it. And then as his schedule became a little more clear, he confirmed that he might be able to join us later. We don't know exactly when he might join us, but hopefully he'll make it in because I think we've got a we've got a very special guest queued up tonight. Uh, I had the luxury of meeting him in 2018, I believe it was, thanks to this guy, Richard Jensen. <laughs> wave hi to the crowd. So if we get a little distracted tonight, we're going to have a little fun here. But first of all, I want to thank Fred for taking the time to spend with us here. We don't you know. It, it's just an honor. If Fred, if you want to just kind of give a quick background about yourself to the people we have here. And uh, I've got a whole list of questions, but we'll take a few live questions too. So take it away, Fred. Well, first of all, uh, having fun is the important part here tonight. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, you know, uh, my life has been uh, a little complex. Uh, I, first of all, I grew up on our farm in North Dakota and uh, uh, really liked farming. And my father allowed me to even start driving a tractor by the time I was nine years old. And I made me feel like I was a you know, really big person and uh, doing important things. But he also insisted I get much, as much education as I could because he had been denied that. So whether I would go to college was never up for, for debate. So I went to college and then got a scholarship uh, to go on and do graduate work and finally earned a PhD at the University of Chicago. And then what was I gonna do? Go back to the farm? That didn't seem to make sense. So I started a career in higher education and I did that for, uh, uh, well, a number of years. And then in uh, 1976, well, first of all, during the time in my uh, work as a uh, faculty member in higher education, one of my students, whose name is David Vetter, who you may have heard of, who's an organic farmer in Nebraska now, and he was one of my students, and he introduced me to organic agriculture. And I was really intrigued by that. And uh, so in 1976, my father had a mild heart attack. And so he told me he was gonna hire someone to help manage the farm for him because he needed that kind of help. And being the Russian German he was, I knew that wasn't gonna work out too well. So I had a long conversation with my family and we decided to go back to the farm and convert it to an organic farm, an organic farm. And uh, my father was actually very excited about that. So I went and did that. And, uh, and then because I had a background in higher education, plus now farmer, I got invited to a lot of uh, uh, opportunities to talk about organic agriculture uh, back in the uh, early 19, 1980s and 1990s. And as a result of that, my name kind of became known as a public speaker, et cetera. And then when the uh, first director of the Leopold Center uh, retired, the search committee, one of the people in the search committee asked me if I would be willing to be a candidate. And so I thought, well, they're not gonna hire a farmer, so they just need a farmer on their list. And so I'll, I'll, I'll agree to do that. And then they ended up hiring me. And by that time, you know, I had a young family on our farm because I had so many speaking engagements and stuff, I need some help. 
And there was a young family in our community that was looking for an opportunity to farm. And so they came and joined the farm. And then I told them that the only way I could even consider taking this position at the Leopold Center was that they agreed to take over the operation of the farm, which they were very excited about doing. So they did that. And then I, you know, went to Ames, Iowa, where I live now. And uh, I served as the director of the Leopold Center uh, for, uh, well, about 15 years. And then also became involved with the Stone Barn Center out in New York. And I'm still you know, doing a little bit of work with them. Uh, so uh, here I am now in retirement. And uh, I thought when I was in retirement, I would have a lot of time on my hands. But then it turned out that because when people found out I was retired, they figured I had a lot more time to devote to some of the things they wanted me to do. So I'm actually been busier than ever, but I'm doing everything on Zoom now. So that's where I'm at. Excellent. Uh, when I was kind of looking how I was going to build my question list for you, one of the biggest things that stood out was you've been referred to as the voice of the soil. Oh, well. <laughs> that's a pretty good compliment. Can you care, well, you yeah, care to expand upon that? Uh, I think the reason for that is, you know, I've never taken uh, – a lot of courses in soil work, but, uh, you know, especially in terms of my work with David Better, it became very clear to me that the soil was the foundation of uh, an agriculture that was truly sustainable. And so uh, I, uh, in my own operation on my own farm, uh, I managed totally in terms of renewing and replenishing soil. And, uh, and uh, the family that's doing our farm now is still, uh, still, you know, working that way. And one of the things I discovered is that, and also in my work uh, with the Stone Barn Center and the Blue Hill Restaurant there and working with uh, Dan Barber and uh, uh, Jack Elger, who is the head of the farming operation there. And he and Dan working together, Dan, of course, is the head chef of the restaurant. And he's interested in the best tasting food. And Jack is interested in farm being uh, regenerative and that again, soil and soil health is the important part of that. And then when Dan began to raise the food or buy, get the food that was raised on the soil that Jack was managing, he found out that it was the best tasting food he ever had experienced as a chef. And so they have now begun working together and in fact have now created, based on their relationship, a new concept which they're calling 2.0 agriculture and food. And uh, they, uh, uh, they, and of course with the pandemic on now, there have been some limits to, you know, how many people would come into the restaurant, et cetera, and how they would do all of that. But uh, uh, they have now developed this system where everything is based on growing food on healthy soil. And it's the healthy soil, which then provides the quality of food uh, that Dan wants to serve in his restaurant. And, it's, and that concept is taking off. There are now individuals in 47 states who have begun to find out about the kind of system that Dan and Jack are doing uh, in New York and, and uh, copying that in their own locations.
and 66 countries uh, which are also uh, adopting that concept. So it's, uh, it's been catching on. Uh, back up to your farm there, you mentioned uh, the practices you implemented on the farm. Do you care to explain how you were re regenerating soil in 1976, if I believe it was, or what was your mindset upon, about in that time frame? Yeah, well, again, the principles for that I learned from my student from David Better. And uh, uh, the basic thing about the way you manage soil is that uh, you manage it for the life in the soil. It's the life in soil, obviously, that, uh, that is uh, the, the center. Uh, and this is one of the problems with you know, our current conventional agriculture which is all about the inputs that you put in in order to get the response that you want. And soil is simply looked at as a material to hold a plant in place. And, uh, but in the, uh, the kind of organic agriculture that, that I'm doing and that, and there are some people in our history that have done that, uh, you know, Liberty Hyde Bailey, for example, who was one of the first deans of agriculture, uh, he wrote a book entitled The Holy Earth. And what he pointed out in that was that the way we needed to do agriculture is not dependent on what we put in, but rather treat, rather looking at the earth as holy. And how do you manage it in a way that you get the benefits from that self-renewing capacity? Uh, and of course, uh, even though he wrote his book and was one of the first deans of agriculture, uh, you know, the major culture that had emerged in uh, uh, not only in our country, but pretty much throughout the world uh, was uh, to, you know, an input system. Uh, and that goes back to uh, Eustace von Liebig uh, back in, I think the 1930s or 40s, whenever it was. And, uh, you know, he came up with the, uh, the law of the minimum. How do you get the maximum output for the minimum input? And he's the one who came up with the big three, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potash. And if you put those three inputs in, then you get the maximum outputs. And especially after the Second World War, that kind of concept, since the uh, companies that had been developing, uh, you know, materials for the war found out that when the war was over, of course, they were they didn't uh, have those materials for market anymore, and so they found out that they could use their same skills to develop these uh, cheap inputs: uh, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potash, and uh, that became available on a pretty cheap basis. And really, is when uh, the revolution took place. Okay, we we talked some of your highlights. Now I want to go just a little different direction. What would you say was your biggest setback, both personally and professionally? My biggest setback? <laughs> well, you know, uh, that's a hard question to answer because I've been very fortunate in that, uh, you know, every new situation that I've been involved in, uh, there were always incredible opportunities uh, to explore and do what I wanted to do. And uh, <clears throat> so I was never uh, without things to do. My biggest problem was always how do I find time to do all of the things 
that I had an opportunity to do. Uh, so uh, it's a hard question to answer, I think. Okay. Well, I appreciate that. And you're considered a longtime leader in sustainable agriculture. Nowadays, the big buzzword is Regen Act. Yeah. How would you compare how the, that movement evolved compared to the way Regen Ag is evolving today? Yeah, well, you know, again, it's, uh, you know, if you look at the history, there's a long history of individuals who recognized that, uh, you know, agriculture in order to be self-renewing uh, had to be based on the health of soil, et cetera. Uh, but uh, the input, when the inputs were so cheap right after the Second World War, uh, that became uh, economically attractive. And so we bought into this uh, input uh, agriculture system and raising huge monocultures, uh, which then provided uh, quantities of materials that served the market well. And so that's been the kind of direction that we've been going in. But there have always been a few people, you know, going back to uh, the early 1900s uh, that understood, and Liberty Height Bailey being one of them, as I mentioned, uh, you know, recognizing that this was the wrong direction. Uh, but uh, because the input intensive agriculture, at least on the short term, seemed to be so successful, uh, that other approach of spending time into renewing the health of soil or managing for renewing soil uh, just never uh, uh, caught on very much except in a few isolated locations. Carrying on that same train of thought, as a, the younger generation following your lead, how do we keep moving forward on a positive basis without going negative. I, the biggest problem I see going on right now is everybody wants to shame in, everybody into changing. What would be your suggestion how to move forward in a positive fashion? Yeah, well, one of the things I think that, and uh, maybe I'm too optimistic here, but uh, what I'm seeing, and since I'm retired, I don't spend as much time with students anymore as I did before, but I still have some ongoing relationships and one of the things I'm discovering is that this new generation of farmers now, and, and it's not just the students that I'm working with, there are in fact uh, a number of authors now who are young farmers. Uh, you know, one of those is a, a book by James Rebanks, uh, the title of which is a pastoral song. And he writes the story about his own experience as a young farmer and uh, he discovered again that this sense of self-renewing uh, approaches was a much more uh, a better way to farm for a lot of reasons, both for you know the cost, uh, for the benefits, uh, and 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 there've been a, there've been several young farmers that now have uh, written about uh, this kind of aspect to agriculture. But the, as where we are right now is six, uh, uh, about, I think it's 70% of our farmers now are over age 60. Uh, and of course, they're all farmers who bought into this get bigger, get out concept. 
And uh, so they've spent all of their lives, uh, you know, producing as much as possible based on the inputs you had to put in. And so asking them in their 70s and 80s to make the kind of changes we're talking about uh, is simply not realistic. But these younger farmers, and I don't know if anybody's done a study yet of what percentage of farmers there are, but here in Iowa, we have an organization that has called itself the Practical Farmers of Iowa. And many of those farmers are younger farmers, and they are moving in this, in this new direction and uh, are, are finding it quite successful. And, uh, are, and, and the Practical Farmers of Iowa has been growing enormously in uh, the last decade. Uh, so there are some uh, new beginnings uh, that are driven uh, by experiences that young farmers are having and also because they realize that the inputs that we've been using to sustain the conventional agriculture are all non-renewable. And already now the cost of nitrogen, the cost of phosphorus are becoming hugely expensive. And even some of the older farmers are beginning to wonder, for example, in Iowa now, Corn, of course, which needs more of these inputs than soybeans. And corn has always been the biggest crop in Iowa. But this spring, farmers are saying they're going to raise more soybeans simply because economically it works out better for them. So I think we're at the beginnings of some changes that are going to be driven uh, by the economics of the situation. Thank you. Uh, one of the neat projects I've had a chance to tie in the last several months here, thanks to Jimmy Emons, is uh, he introduced me to the Sand County Foundation based on Leopold, Aldo Leopold. Yeah. And we're fortunate enough, you're a distinguished fellow, the leader of the Leopold Center. What can you expand upon Aldo Leopold and the whole Leopold Center, please? Well, the thing that's interesting about Leopold is that, uh, you know, he already understood early in his career that the kind of direction uh, that uh, agriculture and the food system was going in uh, was simply not the right direction. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, he, uh, he came up with uh, a number of interesting concepts. Uh, you know, uh, to me, uh, you know, one of them was his, his notion, he said that, uh, that we are not the, uh, you know, the, 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 the controller of nature or, or of the soil. We're simply plain members and citizens. And so we have to learn, you know, from nature how we, uh, how we manage things rather than, uh, than, the, than, than the other way around. But of course, uh, again, because the other culture had become so popular, even though Leopold wrote about this back in 1930, uh, it was not something that was uh, put into practice very much. Uh, but uh, the, the, the literature is still there. And I think increasingly, uh, I'm seeing at least uh, an increasing interest, especially among younger students, 
about uh, reading more of Leopold and uh, incorporating some of his thinking into their uh, into their perceptions. I happen happen to have this conversation here with Dick yesterday. For most of you people, this is Dick Jensen here. I introduced him earlier, but he's been a longtime mentor of mine. But yesterday, he told the story of two young county conservationists in our area that were tired of being paper pushers. They actually joined the conservation field because they yeah. wanted to be out helping people actually do what we we're talking about. Yeah. You know, that, that, that's kind of one of the things that bothers me. But one other thing I want to touch on with the Leopold and all that, part of the uh, fruits of our effort of the last year here is the San County Foundation just announced that we're gonna have, they just opened nominations for the first uh, Leopold Award for Iowa. So we're making progress. I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate enough, I get to consider through my travels, I've met a lot of the past Leopold winners from other states and that. So I, I hope people start looking into that and understanding some of the relevance of what that all means to some people. Well, let me just, uh, uh, again, since we're talking about Leopold and I kind of assumed when I was thinking about our, our meeting today that some issues around Leopold might come up. So I went back and uh, dug out of uh, uh, some of Leopold's writings, uh, especially one statement that I always thought was uh, uh you know, pretty relevant to, uh, you know, to what uh, this was in his San County Almanac. He said, it was inevitable and no doubt desirable that the, the tremendous momentum of industrialization should have spread to farm life. It is clear to me, however, that it, is it has overshot the mark in the sense that it is generating new insecurities, economic and ecological, in place of those that it was meant to abolish. In its extreme form, it is humanly desolate and economically unstable. These extremes will someday die of their own too much, not because they are bad for wildlife, but because they are bad for the farmers. <laughs> and I always thought that was a perceptive statement of his, you know, uh, written back in the 1930s that uh, uh, is, probably relevant to our own time. Took a lot of us a long time to learn that. Yeah. Uh, another another thing I really keyed on when I was kind of last Sunday when I was kind of preparing some of my questions is Lifetime Achievement Award for James Beard. What's that mean? <laughs> we, we've all heard of the James Beard Awards for chefs and stuff like that. Yeah. How does a simple farmer yeah. win such award? Well, you know, I've never sought for, uh, you know, recognitions like that. They just sort of happened along the way. And, uh, you know, naturally I was pleased that uh, some of the work that I was doing, you know, had enough of a, an interest uh, that it uh, had uh, individuals feel like they wanted to recognize it. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I always see those kinds of things as not something that, you know, is a reward to me, but it's a reward to uh, the concepts and the, the philosophy and the thoughtfulness uh, which, for which I am uh, indebted to 
many of the people that I have had the pleasure of associating with. And again, David Vetter, my former student being uh, one of the key ones. Uh, so uh, I don't know. I mean, that's the way I kind of see things anyway. Well, I'm just sitting here thinking, I go back to that first time we met in 2018 and you kind of triggered a few thoughts on my mind that I don't know if I even really recognized at the time until just this past year, we were fortunate enough to have a beer come out with our label on it and all that. And they called it Regen Beer. <laughs> and it was introduced in the community where it should have been a hit. But your average consumer didn't realize exactly what that meant. You know, and it, it came to my mind, it's like, how are we missing the point this hard? You addressed some of this 10 years ago already. And here now we're trying to recreate the wheel. So that's, you know, that, that was when Rick said, oh, Hey, invite anybody. That's you really want. That's I'm like, oh my God, this yeah. is, this is what we got to really do. Observation. And, uh, you know, my view of that is that, you know, and, and I, uh, I see a lot of things pres pre presently, for example, uh, that I think we are totally missing in terms of our involvement in our own world today. Uh, you know, uh, just as an example, and there are uh, uh, a number of people now who are writing about this, and uh, E.O. Wilson is one of them, you know, and he wrote this book, what, I don't know, 10 years ago, called Half Earth, in which he pointed out very clearly that if we want to continue to be uh, livable, want, want the earth to be a livable planet for us humans, then we have to keep half of the earth in wildness because it's the wildness that has the regenerative capacity that keeps renewing uh, the earth for us. And if we don't have half the earth in wildness, then eventually uh, it's not going to be a livable planet for us humans. So, you know, there are a, a few people who are making those kinds of observations and writing about them very compellingly. But, you know, we still have a culture, uh, and, you know, I see this every day, uh, where we're primarily interested in what else do we need to do in order to make the earth uh, be what we want it to be, rather than how do we begin to learn from the earth and figure out how we can adapt to, <coughs> to the earth, <coughs> excuse me, in order to, uh, you know, have a productive life. And uh, there is, uh, I'm going to pull it down from my bookshelf here, uh, a new book that just came out that uh, it's actually a booklet called Moderate Greatness, Why Civilizations Fail and Will, uh, William Uphols is the author of it. And in a few chapters, he goes into, you know, how we have put ourselves into a situation now where if we continue to do what we're doing, it's gonna increasingly make it more difficult for our civilizations to survive. And the kind of changes we have to make is to more figure out how we can adopt the kind of culture that we had when we were hunter-gatherers. In other words, we were dependent on nature and, and looking to nature for how it would feed us. 
uh, and he feels that we're at a point now where we have to begin to learn how to appreciate that and incorporate that into our culture if we're going to have a civilization that can survive. Uh, so again, there are people who are beginning to try to uh, help us think about, you know, how we how we relate to our Mother Earth uh, in our own interests. Uh, and uh, so uh, I don't know. <coughs> Excuse me again. I, uh, again, one of the things that excites me is that an increasing number of our younger generation are, you know, recognizing this and recognizing it's their future uh, that they have to uh, uh, be concerned about and uh, that continuing on the path of dominating nature and forcing nature to do what we want to do in our interests is simply not the future uh, that's going to be uh, a survivable future for us humans. So uh, I don't know how, and then of course, with the effects of climate change and all of that, and uh, many of uh, uh, the people who are really studying this are telling us we only have about 20 years now uh, to make major changes uh, that uh, are going to serve the, renewal of the earth rather than just our own short-term interests. Uh, so we'll have to see how that plays out. But uh, uh, in my view, the next 20 to 30 years are going to be pretty critical in terms of the future of the human species on our planet. One of my strong suits, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're kind of going this way, because one of my strong suits has always been I've paid attention to my elders and I love sitting and listening to talk to the elder folks and stuff like that. But I, this past winter, I started questioning myself, you know, a lot of the people I've been focusing on are strong German heritage and stuff like that because of my roots. Yeah. So I started paying attention to this young lady on Twitter here this last winter. She's a uh, ethnic uh, Native American professor that I was going to reach out to. And all of a sudden I started thinking to myself, well, do I need to go that far? <laughs> so just yesterday I got a letter back from the chief ecologist or however, you know, agroecologist at the Tama Indians. So I'm hoping here this winter yet, we're going to probably be setting up a meeting and I want to start, you know, if we're going to truly start paying attention to how our farms are running in that, yeah. We really need to be going to the local experts, which would be the native Indians and in that and start grasping that knowledge and try to document and figure out yeah. what can we do better that they already knew. Yeah. So thank you for taking us down that road. Now, I think what you just described is an important kind of an approach. In other words, you know, I have found it, <coughs> excuse me, at least, uh, that any effort to try to get people to change is not very successful, but we can have conversations and respect the conversations of others who may disagree with us, but recognizing that the conversation is what's important. And if we do the conversations in a respectful way, uh, then we're much more likely uh, to have you know, our perspective uh, listen to. 
One of the earliest introductions I had to you, other than Dick introducing, was your TED Talk. Do you care to expand upon what you touched on that day for the people that there's quite a few people on here, I'm guessing, have never heard of you until this point. So for the listeners, go ahead and Google TED Talks, Fred Kirschman, but give a little direct insight here. Well, you know, what I would prefer uh, is for you to tell me what interested you around that, and then I can respond to that. uh, Because, uh, you know, I don't know that what I would talk about is, uh, you know. Well, just, you kind of started triggering in thoughts. Granted, we've we've hit upon a few of them already, and I've got a few more questions where I'm going to try to really bring some of that out. But I want the people... Hopefully we got some people here listening if they want to chime in with a question, punch your question in if you've seen that TED Talk. But like I said, it, you, you kind of inspired me back then already when I watched that. And it's really changed my way of thinking on our farm. You know, I'll go yeah. back to a month ago here in Ukraine when I was over there. The farmers there couldn't understand that I don't actually have a cash flow and stuff like that. I focus on the signs that mother nature is starting to tell me and stuff like that. And I said, you know, it's just the evolution of our operation kind of took a hard, hard right turn upon listening to some of that stuff from the the San County foundation book and all that. And like I said, I do, I just, I want, I want the people listening to this feel free to go back and listen to that stuff. Yeah, well, you know, I've been fortunate to be involved in a number of things. I mean, have been there are several uh, uh, movies that have been put together, and and then you know the TED talks, etc. So, uh, uh, and I, you know, not these are none of these are things that I decided to do. They were requests uh, to become involved and to participate. And in most of these, you know, basically what I did was respond to, you know, as I am doing with you, uh, to things that people wanted me to talk about or to discuss. And, 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 and they're mostly based on my own experience and my own life. And, and uh, which, as I already mentioned, uh, was shaped by uh, many people who, uh, you know, who, who informed me in a way that, that ultimately changed the way I think about things and how I evolved. Uh, so, uh, I, I, I don't know if you have some specific questions about, uh, the Ted talk, I could respond to that, but I'm trying to even remember exactly. Yeah. Well, that's kind of where I'm at right now too, because I, I watched that again last Sunday, just kind of get my brain in the game here. But now I've got my my mind is just flooding with thoughts here right now. And one of one of the things we're going to have is people are asking for the list of books you've mentioned. We'll 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 try to take care of that to the people listening. But uh, we just had another question, Fred. The, what things are being done on your farm now that are quite different from when you started? Well, you know, that's, uh, that's a really great question. And, uh, you know, we have uh, a, a young family uh, that's operating the farm now. And uh, <clears throat> their oldest son has now, in fact, uh, purchased, I mean, the, the family had their own farm, which is right next door to our farm. Uh, 
And, but the son uh, started to live, uh, you know, when I moved to Iowa, he started to live in the house on the main farm. And uh, he's been pretty much taking over the animal operation of the farm and uh, just got married this last June. And so he's now decided uh, to buy that quarter section that has the farm on it. And uh, I, you know, I'm very excited about, because he's, he has learned uh, partly from his father and partly from his own experience, you know, that uh, the way he needs to farm is to, uh, I mean, they, and they're, they're obviously uh, operating the farm organically and it's certified organic, but uh, Josiah, the son's name is Josiah. Josiah has begin, begun to discover throughout his experience on the farm, again, how important it is to focus on keeping the soil healthy and it's the life in the soil that ultimately uh, sustains the whole operation. So uh, I'm very excited about uh, his, and his, his father, of course, is also, uh, you know, very engaged in all of that. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, I'm sure that, and I don't, I don't know what they're doing every day on the farm. Uh, it, it's, it's not up to me to do that, but uh, we do have conversations at least once a week. And, uh, uh, they then they then they you know this this last this last year for example, they had a huge drought up there at that in that part of North Dakota, and so uh, uh, in the in the right where the, where the main farm is, uh, the drought was the worst, and they didn't put they didn't put a combine into a single field because there just wasn't anything to combine, and in some of the fields that are. Uh, uh, a little more, a little bit more distant from that. They did have a little bit of rain, so they combined a little of that. But nevertheless, in spite of that, you know, they have been able to manage in a way that, uh, you know, they're still paying the rent and all of that. Uh, and I told them that they shouldn't worry about that. If, if there was difficult, we could postpone that uh, to next year. But uh, they seem to be... Uh, managing it in a way that's, uh, you know, that's working for them economically and uh, ecologically. And, uh, uh, you know, they're, I mean, they're, and they're, you know, they're, they're very much a part of it. They're not doing the farm as something uh, that's distant from them. They're, you know, the, the farm has become a part of their livelihood. Ah, uh, I got a little quote here, and I think it might be from the TED Talk. Ducks and rice, followed by fish, and pheasants are better foragers than chickens or other domesticated animals. Care to, uh, does that jog any memories or? I, uh, I, I were missing part of that. I didn't hear the early part of what you said. Uh, ducks and rice, followed by fish. And then the next next quote I have is pheasants are better foragers than chickens or other domesticated animals. <laughs> well, I, I don't recall that, but uh, you know what goes through my mind when you do that is that 
I do think that uh, <clears throat> I'm, I'm not opposed to, uh, you know, domestication of things, but I think we need to do it in a way that we learn from nature rather than trying to dominate nature. And uh, so I think that's what's at the heart of that statement. Uh, uh, so uh, the story you told, I believe you were talking about a young gentleman that you followed. He was growing rice and he had the ideal, hey, we got water, let's throw the fish in there. And then I think he threw something else in there. It, it was just, like I said, I, it was one of those unique stories that I've heard you tell over and over. And uh, I just, I, I, I enjoy that kind of thing. So that, 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 we touched upon that a little already when we talked about. Again, it's the interconnection of life in, in, in nature that we need to pay attention to rather than to how we, how we can dominate things. Now, do you care to expand upon the, your connection at the Stone Barns? I mean, my, my connection started, I think, 2015. Jill Clapperton recommended the book Third Plate. Yeah. I'm not a reader, so I didn't have time to read it. I never made time until here about it two years ago. And then when you were here with Dick that day, you started talking to Russell Hedrick and myself about the, third, about the Stone Barns and that. Can you tell our audience a little more about the Stone Barns and stuff like that? Yeah, well, uh, you know, that it's a longer story, but uh, as I think I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, Jack Elger, uh, he understood uh, early in his life that uh, what we, that, that it's the soil and health in the soil, uh, that's the foundation. Uh, and the Stone Barns Center, I mean, that facility was originally owned by the Rockefellers. And they became very intrigued by kinds of things that Jack and others were doing. And uh, so contributed much of that uh, you know, to, to the Stone Barns. And uh, <clears throat> Jack, uh, and then at one point they decided they were gonna build greenhouses so they could grow stuff in the winter months as well as in the summer months. <clears throat> and so when the people who were gonna build the greenhouses came out there, they were going to, like they usually always did, you know, have a cement floor and then, you know, build, uh, you know, components on top of the cement floor and put soil into it. And Jack said, no, no, it's the soil is the foundation of it and we need to keep it to keep the soil. And they were really difficult about that, but he, he convinced them to do that. And, uh, and, and, and anyway, it, it was simply one example of how, Jack from the beginning began to realize that it's the health in the soil that's the foundation of growing food. And so he managed the whole stone barns that way. And then uh, it was, I think, 10 years ago when uh, the Blue Hill restaurant uh, decided to uh, open a restaurant there. And Dan Barber, who is the uh, chef of that, uh, and and he, of course, his major issue was having the best tasting food in the world. And when he started to get food from the soil that Jack was managing, he began to realize that this was the best tasting food that he had ever had. And so uh, he, he became uh, in, interested in how Jack was doing that. And the two of them, Jack and Dan now, 
they have continued to work together and have really uh, started now a whole concept which they call uh, 2.0 agriculture, food and agriculture 2.0. In other words, it's, it's this whole new way of doing this. And uh, uh, it's, it's just uh, an amazing uh, operation now. Uh, and uh, uh, both from a point of view of the, you know, the, the way to grow food and to have the best tasting food uh, that you could ever imagine. And uh, that's what it's all about now. I'm fortunate enough, uh, Dan Barber joined our peer group uh, a year ago in January there, and I really got to sit down and have a conversation with him. And I'm looking forward to the chance when I get to go out there and yeah. actually see the whole deal. I want to, I want to, that's one of the deals I want to experience firsthand. Yeah. And, yeah. and the, the third plate is uh, an amazing book. It's been translated into seven different languages now, and it's uh, been all over the world. Yeah, like, like I said, I'm not a book reader, but that's one of the few books I've read now, and I'm hoping he writes the fourth plate now or something like that, because yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading that one and just picking his well, brain. I've, been, I've, I've actually been encouraging Jack and Dan to write an, another book together, because this relationship that they've developed, uh, I think, is another part of the story that's important to get out there. So I think they're considering it, but... They haven't uh, told me yet, for sure. And, and that, that, that brings me kind of why I wanted to bring you on, because, you know, go back to that meeting in 2018, you you just laid it out there. And as a host of the meeting, I never got to hear it. And then they never got any of that recorded. And <laughs> it's just like all these years I've been like, how do we ever get this on recording? You know, because, you know, I, I tell people you're the only guy I know that you can be sitting there talking to five minutes beforehand and you have no clue what you're going to talk about and you'll get up there and talk for four hours, <laughs> but, uh, uh, energy is on all our minds at the moment. One of the quotes again, that I picked up from you is it took 125 years for the first trillion barrels of oil, yeah. 30 years to use the next trillion. Yeah. Where, where do you, can you give us some background on that? And, take it to the next generation and say, here, folks, this is what you need to be thinking about. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> that's really probably the most important question that you raised because, uh, you know, uh, fossil fuels all come from non-renewable resources. And uh, we're at a point now as we're beginning to experience and, and a lot of the uh, unfortunate uh, things that we're experiencing right now in our world uh, is based on the limitations of those uh, energy resources. And, uh, you know, some people trying to figure out how they can grab and hang on to a part of that. And what we really need to do is to think about what are the alternative forms of energy uh, that you know, we're gonna to have to explore because uh, you know, like I say, oil and, uh, and, and fossil fuels are not a renewable resource. So we're gonna see increasing depletion of that resource. 
and we have to figure out. And, you know, I think a, a little bit of the good news is, at least as I've been experiencing here in the, in the last several months, there are a lot of people that are beginning to explore what alternative sources of energy are and how we can begin to make that transition. But it's not going to be easy. You know, I think about this when we when I think about when I'm a, and I've got a, you know, a, a, a fuel based car. And when I'm out on the road and I see all these cars and I think about people who are saying, well, we're going to have to, you know, get off of fossil fuels and uh, go to electric cars or something like that. And I, I think about, you know, that transition with the millions of cars out there and, and people still needing to get from one point to another with their cars and, uh, the electric vehicle, the electrical vehicles, at least up to this point, are not readily available or or affordable. So we're going to have huge transitions that we've got to go through. That uh, hopefully we'll find a way to do that uh, is not going to cause, uh, you know, the kind of hardships that uh, cause people to do unpleasant things. Well, one of the things I keep going back to is I've been kind of focusing on this a little while already. You know, electric seems to be the vehicle of choice. Everybody's deciding. But why are we overlooking other alternatives? I mean, the one I keep going back to is hydrogen. I mean, basically, we, we break the water apart and bring it back together. You know, the exhaust is water. Yeah. You know, we, we can store hydrogen efficiently. We can do all that. We don't have to change the whole system. Yeah. Why, why are we so focused on one avenue? Well, <laughs> that's a great question. And I don't know, I have an answer to it, Amina. Uh, but I think part of it is that, you know, we tend to look at problems in terms of finding, you know, the solutions that we can that we can uh, develop uh, quickly and efficiently, and without making huge changes in our livelihoods. And uh, uh, this is one of the things that I like about the book that I mentioned a little while ago, uh, because uh, you know he really he really makes us think that. The, the main thing that we have to do is really fundamentally, you know, change the way we think and, and how we, how we're going to live on planet earth, uh, as a, as a species. So, uh, uh I, I don't know, at some point we may get, get to the point where we're going to experience that kind of revolution, but that's going to be difficult because, you know, we, we've been living in a culture that's now over a century long and, uh, and, and, and that culture has always been kind of on the notion that, you know, we, we are the masters and possessors of nature and we need to bend nature to our will. And we just got to learn how to do that better. And uh, that's not going to be a future that's going to be uh, survivable for us. Uh, so we've got some, uh, some deep, uh emotional changes that we have to go through and uh and 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 that's where i think uh some of the kinds of uh 
conversations that I'm at least beginning to see, especially young, along, among the younger generation, uh, where people are beginning to look at this and try to think about, you know, how they can relate to each other together uh, in terms of a different kind of future. Thank you. Uh, being, being I brought up water, my next question is, let's talk water. What, I, I keep going back to one of my, the highlights for me this summer was the DNR came out and they found trout right in my creek, which is about five miles from where they stocked the trout. Yeah. To me, that's the ultimate compliment that we've got water quality in that. But in your mind, what could we do better to entice better water quality on the big picture? Well, that's a, <laughs> if I had an answer to that, I would. Uh... That's your next TED talk? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but, but I'm glad you raised the question because, you know, water is simply one great example of how we have not paid attention uh, to nature and how we need to relate to nature not only in the benefit of nature, but in our own benefit. And, uh, you know, uh, even here in Iowa, you know, now uh, there's, if I've forgotten the exact number, but it's something like $700 an hour that the Des Moines community has to pay in order to, uh, you know, purify their water to make it safe to drink for their citizens. And, uh, and part of that is because the water, the source of the water for Des Moines, Iowa is uh, from uh, a stream and lakes. And of course that water is uh, contaminated uh, to some extent by the kind of agriculture that's being done around it. So, uh, you know, and then, and then much of that unpurified water ends up you know, going down uh, south into the uh, into the water and the and the south of the of our country, and uh, so you know we can't continue to do this. We've got to begin looking at you know how uh, not only the resources that we depend on, but that are a part of the future uh, of future generations, and. Uh, and so we have to we have to make major changes in the way in which we live on the planet uh, to stop causing this kind of unnecessary harm. Uh, we just had another question pop up here from Drew Olson. I have a three-year-old girl and a one-year-old boy, and I'm truly scared for their future. We read books every night, and I wish there was more resources to educate our youngest generation. Thoughts on education, starting with our most innocent minds. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great, a great question. And, uh, you know, it, unfortunately there aren't enough people that begin to think in those terms. You know, I, I think, I mean, I don't, I don't have any, I, I have two children and neither of them, each, either each of them have decided in their own way not to have their own children. So I don't have any grandchildren, but I have a lot of friends who do. And, uh, you know, to me, there are two kinds of issues around that. One is that 
we're not as a as a society we're not paying enough attention to how we've been living on the planet are affecting future generations and the, and the other thing is that we aren't uh i think sufficiently paying attention uh to how uh the planet earth can continue to sustain human populations uh and 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 again we're we're in this culture now where our total effort and energy is focused on how we can make nature do what we want her to do rather than learning from nature and how we need to change you know recognizing you know as as Aldo Leopold pointed out as i pointed out what ago in his quote that we're not the conquerors of the land community we're simply plain members and citizens and and there's another resource that i have found really useful and that's a book published uh i think about 10 years ago uh by Brian Swim and Mary Evelyn Tucker the title of which is journey of the universe and they point out that here we are on our planet earth and the planet earth is part of a much larger universe and that universe is part of a much larger cosmos and this cosmos has been evolving for 14 billion years and so if we still think that we as the inhabitants of planet earth can control our future we're just really kidding ourselves what we have to do is start learning that we are simply a part of the universe and a part of the cosmos and learn how we need to adapt to those uh 14 billion year old uh evolutionary journeys because that's not going to change that's going to continue to evolve regardless what we do and if we don't learn to adapt to it then the human population is going to be in jeopardy Again, thank you. Uh, Drew, one of the suggestions I'd have for you, I don't know where you're at, but if you happen to be near our area here in Northeast Iowa, the July 8, the week of July 18th, feel free to come to the Thursday event, bring your kids. We're going to have our Dick Jensen's Kids Field Day is at the county fair this year and we're going to go all afternoon all kids that's all we're going to focus on our field day will be that whole week leading up to it but feel free to bring your kids to that event please uh next question i have is anticipating future challenges not about predicting the future but anticipating changes in the sense that jared diamond does and if we prepare our, for our changes and they don't happen it's no big deal but if they do happen evidence suggests that societies tend to thrive rather than collapse care to expand upon that yeah well you know jared diamond is one of the people who has deeply influenced me because of how he approaches uh, things and uh you know his major uh, point in his books are that uh you know we we do need to uh think about the future and determine how we want to live in our future but that we humans are never have never been very good about predicting the future so it's not a better of predicting the future it's a matter of anticipating changes and if you anticipate changes 
and prepare for them advance, what he discovered based on a lifetime of study is that those civilizations that anticipated changes and prepared for them in advance were the ones that tended to thrive. Those that failed in that exercise were the ones that tended to collapse. And so he makes a very strong case that we all should begin uh, to anticipate changes and then prepare for them in advance. And then as he points out, if those changes don't happen, it's not a big deal. But if they do happen, then all of his research and evidence indicates that if they do happen, that this is critical uh, you know, to uh, the survival of the human species. So I think that's a, uh, uh, an approach that we should take seriously in our societies and in our culture. And uh, if we think about the changes, anticipate changes that could happen, and we prepare for them in advance, and then if they happen, uh, we'll, we'll have in place the kinds of things that enable us to adapt to those changes. If they don't happen, and it's not a big deal. Okay, uh, one last question I kind of have, and I want to give the people in the audience a heads up that we're, if you got a question, feel free to ask it. We've kind of touched upon this one already, but it's kind of based on the current mindset the younger generation has again. You know, you seem to have had the ability to stay focused all the way through your career tra trajectory. Unlike several, several up-and-comers that I see coming up today, who jump from cliche to cliche, you know, what's the latest, greatest thing to talk about? That's what they're going to talk about. You know, was that a conscious decision? I think I just answered myself on that one, but I want to know where, where your mindset has been through all this, or did it just happen? You know, it, or is that just an inherent risk that we have today with social media? Well, I don't know. The only way I can answer that is as, as I reflect on my own life. And, you know, I'm 87 years old now, so I have a lot of reflection to do. But as I reflect on my own life and I try to think about, now, how did, how did I do this? Or how did I think about this? Or how did this happen? And there's never a simple, easy answer to that, other than that to recognize there are always influences that have happened to me, you know, Pete, not, not only people, but, but uh, you know, social events that, uh, that, you know, like, you know, just as one example, uh, the way I began to think about farming and earth uh, was based on much on my father's influence on me. And, uh, you know, my father uh, somehow underst understood that the kind of agriculture, which was based on get bigger, get out and farm fence row to fence row was just not, uh, just not gonna be a successful way in the long-term future. So on our farm in North Dakota, he never had a field that was more than 30 acres. He already, you know, 50 years ago, started to plant trees on the boundaries of the fields to provide protection from the wind uh, damage, et cetera. And uh, 
So all of that, at a, at a young age even, and you know, even by the time I was five years old, he always used to get me up at five o'clock in the morning and take him out and do the chores while he milked the cows. So I became involved directly in a, at a very early age and began to learn uh, how all of those things, you know, were important to me and my life and my future. And that really shaped, uh, you know, uh, the way I lived the rest of my life. Uh, and, but it's just one example of how I've always been enormously fortunate uh, to be a part of uh, physical systems and social systems that uh, uh, made me think about things in a way that uh, I think helped me uh, understand how I needed to live my life. Your tree comment there just triggered one heck of a good thought there from one of the first things I noticed when we landed in Ukraine and we started going farm to farm over there was every field had trees around it, just like you're describing, yeah. except for they had four rows of trees on every field. Yeah. And what they, you know, we all talk agroforestry now, but this was actually from the days of Stalin. And most people don't realize that Stalin, you know, the, the Soviets and the Germans were way ahead of us on soil care. Yeah. And, you know, when I was in Germany here a couple of years ago, I was fortunate enough to meet a young man that was really going back and studying the annals of what the Germans talked about that back in that day. The only thing I seen wrong with what Ukraine was doing today is they were locked in that 1930, 1940 mindset. Uh -huh. You know, there was 80 to 90% moldboard plowed there Yet there was absolutely no dirt. You know, the dirt and the snow, you just, it was the purest, whitest snow I've seen around here. And, uh, you know, that, that, that is just some, some of them little thoughts that blow my mind. And Liz just chimed in that Rick Haney, her husband, actually references Russian scientists from way back in several papers. So maybe we're going to have to have a sit down and talk on that, Liz. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> You know, that, that just blew my mind, but back to them trees, you know, what they do there is they harvest two out of the four rows every so many years. Yeah. So it's kind of a perpetual system, plus it helps protect the whole environment. Right. And, and But then now fast forward today, when you see the war pictures and that, when you see all them tanks buried in the fields and that, it's the plowed dirt and that. So it, it is kind yeah. of neat. I believe Nick here has a question for you now. So uh, more than one question, really. And Fred, I can't tell you on the group how I appreciate being here. And remember, I don't have the credentials, but I have experiences with you 15 years ago. I'm going to touch on a couple of things. Hopefully you all agree with this. We all have one thing in common. That was our childhood. Most of us reflect back to them early days. How did we get this affection? How do we have this spiritual, emotional connection to the land above and beyond this financial value? Even as children, most of us could remember splashing in mud puddles, maybe making mud pies, maybe a tree house, <laughs> multiple things. I can remember following the water in the waterways, maybe 
floating items down. So I'm going to suggest that if we don't somehow uh, create an environment of affection for the land and affection for all the other land members, that affection is what most of us carry. Now we are uh, driven by short-term economics. I'm just suggesting you, like Richard Louvre, you might introduce me to Richard Louvre's No Child in, uh, No Child Left in the Woods. Yeah. I, of course, am trying to develop child programs along along with uh, uh, this gentleman here. But our children have been hijacked. They they enjoy seeing anything under glass as much as as much as us group had that. Uh, spiritual, emotional, baptism with the rest of the living things. So that's, I'm going to let you go from there, if there's any truth to it. Yeah, no, I think you're, you're right. Uh, but the thing is, there's, and, and again, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm hoping at some time, uh, my colleagues at the university can do a study to find out what percentage of the next generation are already beginning to raise the kinds of you know, questions that you're concerned about. And that is, you know, to begin to wonder how we begin to learn from nature and in, in, instead of how to dominate nature, uh, that kind of culture shift. Uh, but I've experienced in my, in my own life with some of the younger generation that I've had the good fortune to work with, that really understand in their own interest and in their own future uh, that they have to begin to pay more attention uh, to nature and to learn from nature. So I don't know, I mean, I, 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 I'm skeptical about, you know, how rapidly that kind of culture shift can take place uh, because uh, the economic pressures and the culture pressures now are in the opposite direction. It's really more how do we dominate better and more effectively rather than how do we learn and adapt more effectively. But that's a, that's a shift that at least the good news, I think, is that there is at least beginning to be that kind of change taking place in the next generation. Good enough. Thank you. Okay, do we have any final questions? Or I got one little request of Fred here. Uh, Fred, would you mind taking the time to uh, make a list of your favorite books, recommended reads, oh. <laughs> must reads, and then email Liz and myself them? Well, and, I can uh, do that. It, it, it probably, I'll, I'll have to make sure it doesn't become too long a list, but. Oh, uh, take, take your time. I mean, the more, the more, I, I don't think okay, anybody will, in this crowd will complain. I will do that. I'll, 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 uh, I'll give you the, the, the book and the author and just a, a short uh, statement of why I think it's important. Yes. And for the, for the listeners, we hope, well, Liz, when we get this list all together, she's got all your contacts. We'll try to send that out. I think you guys truly experienced a gem tonight. I, I appreciate Rick, number one, giving me the chance, and then Fred. I don't okay. know how to thank you. I mean, this, this has been a true honor, and uh, thank Dick for 
Awesome. Somehow together, we're all going to work through this and make a difference. And uh, my hat's off to you. So, well, thank you. Great uh, question and good conversation. It, it's been great. And if I can ever do anything to help you out, say the word, I'm there. So, all right. I'd like any, to know. any final questions from the audience or Liz, you got any final input here? Earth to Liz. I, I, I guess. I think it's amazing and i have plans for all of you people <laughs> I'm, I, so, I'm so excited y'all are amazing with, with all that folks i'm gonna thank you again fred this has been an honor so take care fred my pleasure thank you very much all righty folks thank you guys for joining and uh hopefully next week rick will be back or otherwise i'll try to find another good interview i don't know if i can top this one so Thanks, everybody. All right. Take care. Bye. Thank you.